Heavenly Father, once again, we are so grateful for the Sabbath. We're grateful for the beautiful sunshine today. We're grateful for the freedom that we have to come and worship together without having guards at the doors, without being hauled off to prison. And Father, it's more of a reality in this world than some of us realize. So help us to treasure our time that we get to spend now together. And Father, I pray that as we're here in this house of worship, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to the voice of your Holy Spirit. For Father, we're asking it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you go back just a little bit from 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives us a run-in, and no pun intended, but you'll see why I say that in just a minute. Verse 24, the apostle has been giving instruction to the church in Corinth. In fact, let's go back. I don't want to spend much time on this, but I don't know. We did this in prayer meeting this week. Incidentally, let me just put in a plug for prayer meeting. We've been going through our discipleship handbook. We do it every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8. And uh, it's been a real blessing. But we touched on this this week. Um, in the beginning of Corinthians, there's some, there are similarities between the Corinthian church and the Seventh-day Adventist church that I find interesting. And, I, and as I said in prayer meeting, that, that's kind of cool and then it's kind of not cool if you've ever read First and Second Corinthians because they had their challenges, but we have our challenges too. Uh, we're all sinners who need a Savior, amen? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle in verse 4 says this. He says, I thank my God always concerning you, he's speaking to the Corinthian church, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in everything by him in all what? Utterance and in all knowledge. And the, and, and the way I want to break that down is utterance is what you say, okay? And you're talking to a church, so you're talking about the church's communication of the truth in preaching and teaching. This church has been enriched by Jesus in their preaching and teaching. And in their, what was the other thing? Utterance and knowledge, their understanding of the truth. And I believe that God has blessed the Seventh-day Adventist church with an understanding for special truth for the time we live in in the last days, prophetic understandings and what have you. Now, notice verse 6. Now, verse 6 is one that a lot of people can read over, and, and part of that is due to some of the way it's translated, and I'll touch on that in just a moment. Verse 6 says, even as the what? Now, it depends on which Bible you're reading. If you're reading the King James Bible or the New King James Bible, it will say the testimony of Christ. If you're reading uh, an ESV or, or uh, an NIV or maybe a New American Standard, I'm not sure about the New American Standard, it will say testimony about Christ or about Jesus or something to that effect. And the Greek phrase can be read either way. And we run into that in Revelation. You come to Revelation 12, 17, and it says that the dragon was enraged with a woman and went to make a war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the... And depending on your translation, you can say the testimony of Jesus Christ or the testimony about Jesus Christ. And so that phrase could be read both ways. Now, we know by comparing Revelation 19, 10, and 22, 8, and 9 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, as it says in Revelation 19, 10, or it has to do with the prophetic gift. Now, I want you to notice here, Again, in verse 6, it says, even as my Bible says the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, some say the testimony about Christ. Which one is it? Well, look at the next verse. Verse 7 says, so that you come short in what? 
No what? No gift. Okay? The testimony of Christ or the testimony of Jesus in Scripture refers to the gift of prophecy, and this church has it so that she comes short in no gift. You follow that? Is that hard to follow? Let me do it again. Either you're sleepy or you just didn't get it. So this church is enriched in their utterance and knowledge. They're preaching, they're teaching, they're understanding, even as the testimony of Christ or the testimony of Jesus is confirmed in them. Testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. We see that in verse 7 because it says, so that, because they have this testimony of Christ, so that you come short in no gift. And then it says, eagerly waiting for what? The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's a church who is enriched in their understanding of truth, enriched in their preaching of truth. They have the gift of prophecy and they're looking for the coming of Christ. Do you see the similarities there? So I feel some camaraderie. It's kind of like our sister church, if you will. I know if you read the letters, you might not want to go there, but that's what I'm seeing here in this passage. And I love that last part where it says that, that we're waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus who will confirm us to the end blameless. Can Jesus confirm us blameless to the end? Yes, he can. And he will, and he promises to do so. Now, this is the church that the apostle is speaking to, and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 9 with me, and we're going to get the run-in to the passage in 1 Corinthians 10, which will be our primary focus. After Paul has given much instruction to this church, we're going to pick up in verse 24 of chapter 9, and this is what Paul says. Do you not know that those who run in a what? In a race, all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, Paul is talking about the Greek races, which became what we would know as the Olympics today. These are not little races. These are intense races. You're going to see this in the language in a minute. But he's making the point, and anybody who's ever run, how many of you run in a race before? Okay, there's only one who comes in first place. And that's his point. Only one receives the prize. So you want to run. If you're in that race, you want to run to win. That's what he's saying. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, he's going to make a spiritual application, which we're going to see in a moment. And then he says in verse 25, everyone who competes for the prize, they want to win, they want to come in number one, is temperate in how many things? All things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Now, you know, if you've watched, how many of you have seen the Olympics? What do you win in the Olympics? Okay, gold, silver, bronze, right? That's not how it started out. You know what they got back then? You in the Olympics, you know what you get? You get a crown, a victor's crown. And he says that, an imperishable crown. The Greek word is Stephanos. It's where we get the name Stephanie, my wife's name, or Stephen from. It's a victor's crown compared to the diadema, which is a kingly crown. person runs in a race, they win a crown of leaves, right? You may have seen a picture of the Olympic run, and they have this little thing of leaves around their head. There's the prize. That's what you're running for. That's what you're training for. That's what you're giving your all for. And just so you understand, it was not uncommon 
even in the days of Paul, that people would train so intensely and run so intensely that they would die before they finished the race because they would be exerting every energy, all for a crown of what? Leaves. A perishable crown. So Paul makes the point as he's drawing from that, if they're going to put that much energy into getting the, the perishable crown, how should we run as Christians? They do it for a perishable crown, verse 25, but we for a perishable crown, eternal life. Therefore, he says in verse 26, I run in this way, not with uncertainty. Let me ask you this question again. How many people in the Olympics are going to get, in, in, the, in the 500 meter, are going to get the gold? How many people in the Christian race are going to get the gold, are going to, get the, are going to win that crown? Everyone who finishes it. Everyone who finishes it. So Paul says, hey, I'm not running with uncertainty. I'm not running and thinking, boy, I sure hope I win. I know that if I run and keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, I will win. They're putting forth all this energy for a perishable, we for imperishable, therefore this is the way I run, not with uncertainty. This is the way I fight, not as one who beats the air. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become what? Disqualified. I should be counted out, kicked out of the race, and I don't win. Now, his point overall is this. There are people who put forth... Let me, let me just give you an illustration here, okay? Dave Scott, anybody know of Dave Scott? Six-time... Iron Man champion. You know what the Iron Man is? It's a triathlon race that he's done six times, as the slide says, and won. You know what Dave Scott does to prepare? I mean, I'm not going to tell you everything that Dave Scott does to prepare for a race. The apostle says that people who run in a race, they're temperate in all things. Now, if you have ever really seriously competed in something, do you eat the same way you always eat right before the race? No, you get serious about what you're eating and what you're asleep, how long you sleep and, and how late you stay up and all of that. Why? Because now you're training to win. Temperate, not in some things, temperate in all things. Now, I'm going to go to the nth degree here with Dave Scott. I'm not going to. He goes to it. Now, you can see from the picture that the guy doesn't look like he needs to lose a lot of weight, Right? There are people who say, I need to slim down and I'm going to go from eating pizza and I'm going to take from a cheese pizza and I'm going to switch over to cottage cheese. I'm going to just eat the cottage cheese to lose weight. You ever known people to go down to eat the cottage cheese because it's low fat, right? You know what this dude does with his cottage cheese? Before he eats his cottage cheese when he's training, he rinses it to get all the excess fat out. Okay, I'm not thinking this guy needs to really worry too much about it. But that's where he is. Why? Why would he do it? Why would you rinse your cottage cheese of all things? Because he wants to increase his chances to win the race. And the point is, we could go athlete after athlete who compete in things and draw out the very thing Paul's saying. When these guys are in that race, they're serious about it. And what are they going to win? And, of course, the application question is this. How serious are you about the Christian race? 
Really, how serious are you? The guy rinses his cottage cheese. How serious are we? So the Apostle Paul makes the application to himself. This is the way I fight. And when he says in verse 27, I don't fight as one who beats the air. I'm not swinging at nothing. Now listen to what he's swinging at. But he says, I discipline my body. That word discipline, really interesting word in the Greek language. Hupopiazo. It literally means to give a black eye to. Okay, it's used in the, when somebody's in a fight. In, in the contest he's talking about, in their Olympic Games, they had races. They also had boxing. Their boxing was not like our boxing with the big padded gloves. They were leather straps on your hands, sometimes leather straps and brass knuckles. And wham! And Paul's using this imagery and says, this is the way I fight as a Christian. When my body, when my urges, when my desires want to get me to do the wrong thing, wham! I discipline my body. I give every energy I have to win this race. How much energy are you giving to win the Christian race? Now, you may say, well, you know, look, Pastor, we know we don't have any strength apart from Jesus. Look, I gave my life to Jesus. I pray to Jesus. I ask him to give me strength, and I just trust in him. And, you know, yeah, I have shortcomings and what have you, but I'm just going to, you know, I'm cool with that. He's got this thing. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm sure Jesus has this thing. You know what Jesus does through his spirit? He inspires you to do just like the Apostle Paul. Lest you be disqualified to give all diligence. To fight, not as one who beats the air. Now, in the imagery there, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. He's like, I'm not swinging at nothing. I'm swinging at everything in myself that would draw me away from Christ. I blacken my eye, as it were. I bring my body into subjection because I don't want to be, I don't want to miss out. You say, well, you know, how easy is it to miss out? Then he goes, goes into chapter 10, and this is where we're going to spend our time in this series because he brings up in chapter 10, he starts out, now my Bible starts out in the New King James, moreover, brethren, most other translations start out with the word for. It's a better translation of the Greek. For is a word we would use because. So in other words, I fight this hard. Paul, why are you knocking yourself out? Why are you rinsing your cottage cheese, Paul? This is why. I don't want you to be ignorant of this example, and this is where he goes. Follow along in chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, and I want you to follow along in the wording here in the beginning of chapter 10, and note this word in particular, all. What word did I say? Okay, follow along. I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Speaking of that cloud in the wilderness, pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. All our fathers were under the cloud and, what's it say? All passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's referring back to our fathers when they came out of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire went with them. And how many did it? All did. All came out. All went, and that cloud was with them, and all went through the sea and all followed Moses. Verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food. How many? All of them did. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Powerful 
powerful passage here in the New Testament. You know, there are a lot of Christians who don't realize the presence of Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. But here the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. They all had access to Christ, every one of them. They all had access to Christ. They all claimed to believe in Christ. They all went to the same church. They went to the same potluck. They ate haystacks together. They all gave each other watches for their weddings and all this other stuff. They had the same little culture they all grew up in. But culture does not make a person a Christian. One of the things I shared with the young people during our, well, with all the students during our manual session, and I've probably said it here before too, your Christianity does not begin when you say, I'm a Christian. Let me tell you where your Christianity begins. Your Christianity, your following of Christ, begins when your will and Christ's will meet like this, and you lay yours down and say, I'm going to do what you say, Christ, instead of me. That's when you become a Christian. If Christ asks you to do something you already like to do, hey, go out and take a walk on a sunny day. Okay, cool, Lord. I'm a Christian. No, I'm I'm all about that. It's when Christ tells me, I want you to stop listening to that. But, Lord, I like listening to it. Okay, well, it's not good for you, and my will for you is that you don't do that. You're destroying yourself. Yeah, but I like it. Now, what am I going to do there? That determines whether I'm a Christian. Is Christ going to be the one that I follow, or I'm going to be the one that I follow? You you understand what I'm saying? They all had the same experience. And and so I want you to get the run-in now. Again, Paul is talking about this intensity that he fights the Christian fight with, why? He says, listen, I don't want you to forget our history. We have a history of people who knew God, who claimed to follow God, and they all came through the same experience. But look at verse 5. They had Christ among them, but, verse 5, with, what's the word? Most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, it won't take you a whole lot of time to go back and study. You look a few places and you will get an understanding from what the Bible tells us. Now, the Bible, when it counts, in many places, it counts just the men. <clears throat> in the particular of the Exodus, it counts the men over, I believe, over 20. So the men over 20 years of age numbered about 600,000 people. Now, if you count a woman for every man, which would be pretty close, I think it would be pretty fair to do that, you've got 1.2 million, or I'm sorry, one, yeah, 1,200,000 people, a rough estimate of those who came out of Egypt, not counting the children. Because there were children who weren't held guilty for the sins of the parents who went into the promised land. Of the one. Million two hundred thousand people who came out, how many went into the promised land? Of the 1.2 million who drank of the same spiritual rock and went through the sea and passed with the, the cloud and, and ate the manna and all of that, how many went in? Now, I saw some fingers go two, two men, and they had families, but I'm going to tell you a very, very small number comparatively. That should be alarming to anyone. That all the we're not talking about the heathen nations, folks. We're not talking about the Philistines and the Amorites. We're talking about the Israelites who all shared in the Exodus. And they all had the same experience. 
And yet with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies fell in the wilderness. The apostle points to that and he says, now do you get an idea why I am so intense and rinsing my cottage cheese, as it were? Because I see the example of those who's gone before and they fell in the wilderness. Are you following? He says, I don't want to be disqualified. So he says in verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Verse 7, And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 33,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the apostle in chapter 9 in that run-in talks about how he disciplines his body. When he sees something in his selfish nature that is drawing him away from Christ, he says, I blacken the eye. Why? Because he gives us examples in every case where the devil used the children of Israel's passions and lusts and selfish natures to draw them away from Christ and destroy them in the wilderness. So he says, this is on record for us, written for our admonition. Notice this statement. It says, so long as we are in this world, we shall meet with adverse influences. God doesn't promise us that when we follow him, we're not going to have hardships, right? We're not going to have trials. Day by day and, what's it say? Year by year, we shall conquer self and grow into a noble heroism. This is our allotted task, but it cannot be accomplished without help from Jesus. First thing, and amen. We've got to have the strength of Christ, but Jesus gives us help to go in battle against these tendencies. Without help from Jesus, resolute decision, unwavering purpose, continual watchfulness, and unceasing prayer. Each one has a what? A personal battle to fight. Now notice this next part. Not even God can make our characters noble or our lives useful unless we become co-workers with him. Okay, another way of saying that is simply this. God's not going to force you to be holy. If God could have forced, he would have forced Adam and Eve, he would have forced Lucifer in the beginning. God honors choice, he honors your choice and my choice. So we've got to choose to cooperate. We've got to choose to be a co-worker. We don't choose. God himself isn't going to make us anything other than what we choose to be. Those who decline the struggle lose the strength and joy of victory. You've got to fight the good fight if we're going to win the good fight. You've got to get in the race if you're going to win the race. And you know what? Everybody who finishes, crosses that finish line, wins. And the best news is the Bible says Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. 
So you got to stay in the race. You got to stay in the race. So Paul goes through in 1 Corinthians 10 and begins to share with us these examples of ancient Israel and how they fell in the wilderness. Only a handful entered the promised land, and he says this is there on record for us so that we don't fall after the same examples. Now, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 4 with me. We're going to segue over there. The Bible actually tells us in Hebrews 4 why the people of God did not enter in. So go to the right from 1 Corinthians, go through all the T's, which are kind of crowded together there, then you come to Philemon, and then you come to the book of Hebrews. We're going to Hebrews 4 and verse 6. And we're not taking the time to break down everything in Hebrews. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and then we'll jump to 4, verse 6. You'll get a good picture here. Hebrews 3, 18 and 19, it says, And to whom did he swear, speaking of the Lord, whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, that is, enter into the promised land, but those who did not obey? Now, some Bibles will say believe here, and my translation says obey, and what you'll find is that those words believe and obey are very closely united. That's why the translators can translate them either or. You'll see a little bit more of that in a moment. So mine will actually switch it up. It says, who didn't enter except but those who didn't obey, verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now jump to chapter 4, not four uh, yeah, chapter 4, verse 6. And the Bible says here, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, that is this rest, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter in because of what? Disobedience. Now, another, some translations again will say belief, but I want you to notice the actual word that's translated there. It's the word apathia. And this is a really interesting word. Apathia is where we get our word apathy from. Has anybody ever heard the word apathy? What is apathy? Apathy is kind of this listless, I kind of don't care, I'm not really all that interested. What some of you may be feeling right now. But the word apathia, our word apathy doesn't convey as clearly what the Greek word apathia is. The word apathia refers to, listen carefully, an obstinate rejection of the will of God. It's not an accidental thing. It's not a, you know, sorry, Lord, I wasn't paying attention. Could you tell me again? It says the reason that the Israelites didn't make it into the promised land, the reason that all of those fell in the wilderness is because they persistently refused to do what God asked them to do. All the while claiming to be God's people, all the while traveling in mass, going to church together, going to fellowship meal together, etc., etc. But they were not earnest about obtaining the prize. Instead, they were earnest about following their own lusts, their own ways, an obstinate rejection of the will of God children of Israel in Egypt. Now, in the book Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, it says this, the sin of ancient Israel was in disregarding the expressed will of God and following their own way. I know that's foreign to most of us here, right? 
You've never had an experience where you wanted to follow your way instead of God's way, right? Of course, we know better than that. As you'll see in a minute, ancient Israel is going to be replaced in a minute with the term modern Israel, which is very similar. The sin of ancient Israel is disregarding the express will of God and following their own way according to the leadings of unsanctified hearts. Modern Israel are fast following in their footsteps, and the displeasure of the Lord is as surely resting upon them. It is never difficult to do what we love to do. Right? But to take a course directly against our inclinations. Inclination is just what you're inclined to do, what you like to do is lifting a cross. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself daily, and follow me. That's, that was the idea. Jesus tried to communicate to us that your will is going to come in conflict with God's will at some point, and that's where we've got to decide, who am I going to follow? Ancient Israel followed their own will, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Again, it says... For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. We're not still here in this dark world because we're waiting on God. Let's make that clear. In neither case, ancient Israel or modern Israel, were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. Because we're not serious about Christianity. And lest we get the idea, sometimes we comfort ourselves and say, I know, I should be more serious about my Christian life. I should be more serious about my relationship with Jesus. I'll get around to it. Look at the example of ancient Israel. Did they get around to it? That's written. That's there on record for us. As a warning, as a reminder, as an encouragement, and all those things. So after Paul outlines this, he gives us five examples. And, and it was years ago that I actually went through and I began to look. And I've preached through this series before. Uh, and as I said, it's been it's probably been 10 years now. And I was looking at it again. There are five specific examples the apostles drawing out there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Five of them. The first one he brings up is when the Israelites lusted after the food of Egypt and complained about the manna. The second example he gives is about the worshiping of the golden calf. The third example he gives is about the apostasy of Israel at Baal Peor. The fourth example he gives is about when, the, mo when the, 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 the children of Israel complained about the difficulty of the way and God allows serpents to come out and bite them and he commanded Moses to raise up the serpent on the pole. Which is where John 3.16 is drawn from in the very language of Jesus in John 3. And the fifth example he gives is the rebellion of Korah. And folks, I'm going to tell you that these examples are not accidental and it is astounding how well they apply to God's people upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So in this series, what we're going to do each week, I'm going to cover one of these stories and the application it has to God's people today. And I'll tell you, there are all kinds of lessons in it because we are modern Israel. Now, the good news in all of this is the Apostle Paul starts out talking about how intense he is in fighting the Christian faith. 
How he doesn't run with uncertainty because he knows there's a prize before him. How he has confidence that he can win. But when he comes to the end of the passage, I want to pick it up again in 1 Corinthians 10 and conclude with this last part that the Apostle Paul draws our attention to. First Corinthians 10, after he tells us these all happen to us for examples, he warns us, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then verse 13, he says this, he says, no temptation has overtaken you except what? Such as is common to man. Now, I'm going to tell you that this... That, we, we, in fact, he goes on to say, no temptation has, has overtaken you as such as is common to man, but with the temptation he's going to make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And I know Christians who love to quote this. In fact, I love to quote this. It's a great verse, right? The Lord is not going to allow you to be tempted more than you can be. But that first part, and I want us to understand this, that first part says there is no temptation that has overtaken you but such as is, what does that word mean, common? What's that? It, it's happened before, and it happened to who? What's that? Normal for who? For everybody. In other words, there's the old song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. We like to sing that one. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. No one knows my sorrow. You know, nobody knows but Jesus. And to a degree, that's true. But sometimes we like to feel that the reason that we fall into sin is because I'm tempted worse than anybody else is. My temptations are harder. My trials are harder. If you have read in the book Child Guidance, we're counseled as parents to be careful how we deal with the temptations and trials of our children because sometimes when our children come to us with trials, you're like, that's nothing. Wait till you get to be my age and you get all these pressures of... Right? And we're tempted, we're, ca we're cautioned as parents, don't do that because that trial to your child is every bit as severe as that trial may be to you as an adult that you're having in work and with the work pressures and things like that. You hear what I'm saying? In other words, temptation is common to man. You're, uh, and I, this might, you know, wreck your, your mindset in these things, but nobody here is tempted worse than anybody else. That's what the scripture says. There may be times when you go through a trial more so than somebody else, but the fact of the matter is there is no temptation, that which is common to man. We all experience trials, we all experience temptations, but we all have the same Savior who can give us victory over those temptations. There's no temptation that's taken you, but it says God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able there is never a reason to fall into temptation. It is Satan's act to tempt you, but your own act to what? To yield. It is not in the power of all the hosts of Satan to force the tempted to transgress. That's why the... Look, if it was in the power of Satan to force us, we just give up. Paul wouldn't be saying, hey, this is why I fight. But now he can say, knowing this, that I, I don't fight with uncertainty. I know I can win the fight because the Lord is with me. And the enemy doesn't have, he can't force me to do wrong. With the temptation, he will also make the way of escape 
that you may be able to bear it. Now, as I said, a lot of, I know a lot of saints that like that one, but they never read on to verse 14. And verse 14 starts with what word? Therefore, which means for this reason, for this reason, God's going to make a way of escape. Therefore, what? Flee from idolatry. Well, he spells it out for us. Sometimes we get tempted. We say, well, God has a way of escape. So, Lord, you know, do your thing. And yet we put ourselves in the very places we know we're going to fall. We listen to the music that weakens us. We hang out with the friends that are a bad influence. We go and do things that we know are going to weaken our characters and draw us aside. And we just pray and say, Lord, you're going to have to work this out. No, flee from idolatry. The apostle gives us all the examples of ancient Israel and says this is, in essence, the point. They didn't flee from it. They were enticed by their own carnal desires into practices and habits and lifestyles where they had no other option once they were there but to be taken down. And the apostle says, look, you don't have to be taken down. You can win this thing. The Lord Jesus always makes a way out, but you have got to flee from idolatry. You have got to make a choice to fight against evil and choose the good. This is one of the most powerful statements that that I've ever read. I want to share it with you here. Satan is constantly at work. Most of you are probably well aware of that. But few have any idea of his activity and subtlety. He's sneaky. You don't see him coming. You see that in a minute. The people of God must be prepared to withstand the wily foe. Notice, it is this resistance that Satan dreads. When Paul says, look, I'm going to fight you in the grace of Christ, the devil dreads that. Because he knows he can't ever win against somebody who puts their trust in Christ. So he has to sneak up on you in such a way that you forget to enlist Christ in your battle. It is this resistance that Satan dreads. He knows better than we do the limit of his power and how easily he can be overcome if we resist and face him. You aware of that? Look, he's a defeated foe. He is no match for Christ. And when we are united in Christ and we are going to battle in Christ, the enemy knows full well he can't win. So what does he have to do? He, He has to separate us from Christ. And how does he do it? through all of these subtle things that get us to follow our carnal desires into those habits and practices, just like he did ancient Israel, so that we're separated from Christ, and now he has mastery over us. He knows better than we do the limit of his power and how easily he can be overcome if we resist and face him. Through divine strength, the what? The weakest saint. So there's nobody here who can say, yeah, that sounds good, except for me. I can't, no. Through divine strength, the weakest saint is what? More than a match for him and all his angels. And if brought to the test, he, the weakest weakest saint, would be able to prove his superior power. The enemy cannot defeat you. Therefore, Satan's step is noiseless, his movements stealthy. He does not venture to show himself openly, lest he aroused the Christian's dormant energies and sent him to God in prayer. If we see the devil coming, so what do we do? We listen to that song and say, I don't don't think there's anything wrong with it. 
right? The devil's coming, he's sneaking in. And we don't see anything wrong with it, so guess what I'm not doing? I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to Christ in prayer and saying, Lord, help me to resist this, because I don't see the danger. Because the devil knows if I see the danger and I go to prayer, he's toast. So what happens? He doesn't show himself openly. He sneaks in. Otherwise, he may arouse our energies to go to Christ in prayer, and he's lost. I say, praise God that we have such a promise through Jesus. But the devil does not give up easy. He's on our track as God's people. We are living in the last days. The Lord is trying to give us victory and get us across that line. The devil wants to keep us back. The apostles' words of warning that we're reading to the Corinthian church, the words of warning to the Corinthian church are applicable to all time and are especially adapted to the wants of our day. By idolatry, he did not alone mean the worship of idols, but also selfishness, love of ease, the gratification of appetite and passion. All the things that he used in those examples that we're going to see as we go on in the series to to, uh, sidetrack Israel. All these come under the head of idolatry, a mere profession of faith in Christ, and a boastful knowledge of the truth does not constitute a Christian. A religion which seeks only to gratify the eye, the ear, and the taste, or which permits any hurtful self-indulgence, is not the religion of Christ. It is in harmony with the spirit of the world and is opposed to the teachings of the Holy Scriptures, festivals, and scenes of amusement in which professed members of the Christian church imitate the customs and enjoy the pleasures of the world, constitute a virtual union with the enemies of God. As was the problem with Israel of old. Saints, today the Lord Jesus wants us to win. He wants us to run that race and he wants us to cross the line. And he is the author who put us in the race and he is the finisher of our faith. But you have got to choose to be on his side. And you've got to choose if need be, to rinse your cottage cheese, to put nothing else of more value than finishing this Christian race. And perhaps today the Spirit of God, and maybe not just today, maybe this week, maybe this month, the Spirit of God has been speaking to you and wrestling with you over something in your life that has been hindering you from being in that race, from being wholehearted in your Christian experience. And today the Lord is reminding you again of his great love for you and how willing he is to give himself in every way for you to succeed in the Christian life. But you've got to lay hold of that offer he's given you today. Today you've got to say, Lord Jesus, I want to lay aside every sin that so easily besets me, and I want to run that race with endurance, looking unto you, the author and finisher of my faith. Are you willing to say that today, saints? Who's willing to say today, Lord, I want to, whatever it takes, I want to be on your side, I want to finish that race, and I want to be with you in eternity. Is that your desire? Raise your hands with me today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture today. We thank you for Paul's willingness to point out our shortcomings in our sacred history and encourage us on to victory. We thank you for the promise that we will never be tested further than we are able to handle it. But Father, you have provided a way out, that you have given us grace and strength 
In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, help us not to be obstinate and stubborn as was ancient Israel, that our bodies would be scattered in the wilderness. Lord, help us very soon by your grace to enter into that heavenly kingdom. For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Thank you.